Welcome to Mind Your Margins. This is a podcast that seeks to foster a space where it's humanly possible to make humanity possible. I'm Michelle Myers, and I'll be trying my best to help us navigate through topics about marginalized identities and prioritizing the perspectives of people who may feel invisible or silenced or ignored or erased. Also, I want to acknowledge that these discussions are sometimes difficult. But I'm hoping that through these conversations, we can claim space for understanding and for compassion. Thank you very much for joining me today and for listening. But before I get into today's topic, as I do at the beginning of every episode, I'm going to share a land acknowledgement statement. I'm calling out to the ancestors of the native peoples of this land in the hopes that by honoring them, I also honor my mother and my father who are now ancestors, and through them, connect to my Korean ancestors and the land of my birth. So I hope you'll reflect on the words as I speak them. I acknowledge that the land on which I live and work are the ancestral lands of the Leni Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware continue to this day. I recognize that the place where I recorded this podcast also sits on the unceded homeland of the Lenape people. I and my listeners take this opportunity to honor the original caretakers of this land and recognize the histories of land theft, violence, erasure, and oppression that has brought ourselves here. We are grateful to be guests in these lands and commit to solidarity in the struggle for indigenous sovereignty. This land acknowledgement does not correct the wrongs committed against the Lenape or any of the other First Nation peoples across this continent, but through it, I hope to remind myself and my listeners of our connections and indebtedness to the indigenous people of this land, and particularly of New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Saying their names and learning their histories call them into our consciousness and awareness. Thank you so much for listening to that land acknowledgement statement and if you've listened to previous episodes you may have noticed that I adjusted the wording because I wanted to be more conscious and intentional about what I'm communicating through my use of language and how it communicates subliminal biases that are embedded and encoded in the words and since I've grown up in the United States and I'm speaking the language of the colonialists I want to be mindful and transparent about how this language historically has been used to erase and oppress indigenous peoples. I also wanted to say that in this episode, I'm hoping that my discussion will lead me to talking specifically about the Paiute people and Pyramid Lake near Reno, Nevada. If you don't know much about the Paiute or have never heard of them, I hope that you will look them up as well as about Pyramid Lake and how this ancient lake is sacred to the Paiute and also historically and ecologically vital to this region of northern Nevada. 
Also, when I was out um, in Reno recently to perform, I visited the Pyramid Lake Visitor Center and Museum. And when I was there, I saw that there is now a section devoted to raising awareness about the silent crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Although May 5th is designated as Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Day, this crisis has gone unrecognized for decades, symbolized visually by the Indigenous community as a painted red hand, which some people and activists have also painted over their mouths during demonstrations to depict the silence, as well as the lost voices of these women. So my hope is that we give awareness, energy, and action to this issue, not just on one day or during one month, but as much as we can in whatever way we feel is most comfortable and productive for ourselves. I've asked Myung to share a link to a video created by the Paiute at Pyramid Lake, um, which they created to bring awareness to this issue. And I also hope to talk about this more later in the episode. And another urgent issue I wanted to bring up here at the beginning is the recovery efforts in Maui after the wildfires there. It has been so heartbreaking to hear about the loss and grief that people in Lahaina are going through. Please keep all the people who have been impacted in Maui, from the indigenous peoples in Hawaii to longtime residents to tourists, please keep them in your thoughts and prayers. Also, I hope you'll consider donating to the Hawaii People's Fund which is a grassroots community group which has been mobilizing to provide immediate relief to people who have been directly impacted by the wildfires. Myung will put a link to their website on the podcast description page. And then finally, at this time, I want to send my love to my dear friend and sister Lisa and her husband David, who live in Maui and who are working tirelessly to help their community in the aftermath of this tragedy. Please pray for them and for all the people impacted in Maui. So today's episode will be a departure from previous ones in the sense that I'll be focusing more directly on mental health and mindfulness. I feel as though even though many of us don't talk about it for whatever reasons, so many of us are struggling deep within ourselves. So many of us have these moments where we question our purpose or fall into feelings of paralysis and stagnation where we feel stuck and are overwhelmed by stress, anxiety, fear, and other feelings that lower our energy levels so we don't feel like doing anything, maybe not even want to get out of bed. For many of us, whether it's out of fear or shame, we struggle alone. And when we get stuck in our heads, we get caught in this unforgiving loop of negative self-talk and maybe even self-loathing, where we judge ourselves and say unkind things to ourselves. So in this episode... I want to have an honest conversation about this kind of toxic cycle of self-judgment and see if we can discover a way back on a path of purpose and meaning where we feel inspired once again, where we can have a new vision of our passions and how to spread love to ourselves within and by extension to others without. To have our internal and external worlds be aligned and balanced and fulfilled. And in talking about this, I plan to use my personal experiences over the past few years as an example, sharing some of my struggles, my thoughts, and the lessons I've learned. And in doing so, I'll be exposing my own journey of enduring the wounds of life to break through to the wonders of being, of living consciously and with intention. 
So the approach I'm taking today is different than the other podcast episodes I've done. In those, I tried to gear my conversation around a current event or politics or some issue outside of myself. Though at some point in the episode, I would connect the topic to something personal that had happened to me. But in this episode, I want to start off personal from the door. And I feel compelled to do this because of my recent trip to Reno that I mentioned earlier where I performed at two events for Spoken Views Collective as part of the 2023 Art Town Festival, which is a festival that takes place in Reno every July. And what I want to talk about in this episode is how poetry transforms my life. And if you noticed, I didn't use the past tense. I didn't say transformed my life. I used the present tense, transforms. Poetry transforms my life every day. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's not really a revelatory declaration to make. Michelle's a poet. Of course, she would say something like this. But no, this is not true. At various points in my life, I have been sick of poetry, disappointed in poetry, angry at poetry. I've wanted to quit poetry so many times. But each time that I've been on the verge of saying, that's it, I'm done, poetry has called on me. Poetry has pulled me back in. Not only pulled me back into poetry, but back into life, participating in life, feeling alive, connecting to others, reigniting hope, affirming faith, and not just faith in poetry itself, but as my dear friend and sister Cal recently reminded me, also faith in the existence of love. Because in its purest form to me, That's what poetry is. Poetry is love. And when I say love here, I mean creating community and giving back to people. I mean feeling deep within myself that I am connected to other people and to something bigger than me, to a higher purpose, to a higher self with a capital S. And whether we admit it or not, that's what we're all looking for our purpose, our higher self. You just might call it something different. And in the space where I'm hoping to create community through poetry, I aspire for my message to be one of love, one of empathy, and one of compassion. So a question that I've constantly asked myself over the years and asked the people who are closest to me is, is poetry enough? I guess on some level, the question is, if poetry is mainly what I have to give to the world, is that enough? Like, can poetry really be transformative? Can it really make a tangible and positive difference in people's lives? I mean, what actual work, quote unquote work, am I accomplishing for the community? Was me shouting profanity on stage and talking about issues that impact the Asian American community the same as having boots on the ground directly helping people in the community? And these questions started for me as far back as the early 2000s when Katsy and I were touring around the country and performing at college campuses. And there was this young Asian American man who came up to me after one of our shows and basically he called me out. He called, he called out my form of activism as a poet as being performative. Essentially, he was accusing me of not actually doing anything truly transformative or meaningful for the community. 
And I took that to heart. I took that shit personally because this is what I felt I was meant to do to try to make the world a better place. I still do. I still feel that way. So at the time, I genuinely believed in the work that I was doing through my poetry. And I felt like I was out there on the front lines, both Katsy and me. We were getting all kinds of hate from outside the Asian American Pacific Islander community and from inside the community. I have so many stories I could tell about all this, but since I don't want to go off on a tangent, <laughs> the point is, is that I felt like Katsy and I were enduring many challenges and criticism and taking the brunt of these blows for our community and for our people. And even though they were figurative blows in the sense that they were being made to us verbally, people speaking this hate toward us and about us, it was still mentally and emotionally exhausting. So when this young Asian American man told me that what I was doing as a poet was not enough, it made me question and doubt myself as well as the power of poetry because he was a part of my target audience. And if I wasn't reaching him, then was I truly reaching anyone? And if that was the case, what was the point of me being up on that stage, putting my entire being into this work? And this questioning of my purpose and contribution to the world through my passion, through poetry, has been a daunting struggle for me at various times in my life for the past 20 years. Lucky for me, I've had people in my life who have reminded me not to abandon my passion, who have spoken up for poetry and guided me to re-envision this work as a way to connect people, build community, and spread love. And one of these people has been my dear friend and sister, Cal Q, who is an amazing poet. She's also a singer and a storyteller. And she draws from her Hmong shamanistic birthright to highlight poetry as a way to heal, a way back to a sense of belonging and community, a home, a way back to our true selves. So Cal is my sister in poetry in a way where she speaks on behalf of the heart and soul of poetry. She reminds me that the reason why we feel compelled to do this, to write poetry, is because we were meant to. And that we don't need any other reason. It's through poetry that we speak from our heart and soul and reach out to connect to another person's heart and soul. And how dare anyone ask us to justify that? And so her answer to the question, is poetry enough, is unequivocally yes, because poetry is love. And what other purpose to life is there that is more meaningful than giving and receiving love? This is what Cal reminds me about when I have doubts about poetry. So my conversations with Cal about poetry puts back into perspective for me that poetry is a living thing. It's organic. It has a spirit and it has a consciousness. It's bigger than us. It's ancient. It's infinite. Our ancestors have been sharing poetry and telling stories for thousands and thousands of years. Oral poetry, performance poetry has existed long before the written word itself. Human beings from our very beginnings, as we were developing a structure for language since our first utterances, we have always told stories. Just look at all the mythologies that exist in cultures around the world. And who knows how many countless others have been lost in time. This is the way we've passed down history, passed down spirituality, passed down traditions, passed down culture, knowledge. Everything that we know has been passed down through poetry and narrative. 
And this connects us together because at its essence, poetry is pure love. And I'm sure some of you right now might be like, this is all just philosophical bullshit. No. No, it isn't. And this is coming from me as a person who, like I said, at various times in my life has run from poetry. After my mom passed away five years ago, I completely changed when it came to poetry and performing. Before that, I never had stage fright. Of course, I would get nervous before I would go on stage, but once I hit the stage and got behind the mic, I was free. I felt free and powerful. For me, there was no place more liberating than being on stage. When I was on the mic, I was my most authentic self, and I didn't give a fuck what anyone thought. But that all changed after my mom passed away. After my mom passed away, whenever I got on stage, I was terrified. I couldn't think, couldn't breathe. My mind would go blank and I was afraid I would forget the words to my poems. And these fears became reality when I did actually forget the words to my poems a couple times during performance events. And that doesn't usually happen to me. I have most of my poetry memorized and deeply internalized so that I feel every word when I'm on stage. So when I forgot the words to my poems in the middle of my performances, that deeply affected me. I felt so insecure. I felt meek. I felt like I had no voice anymore. And then the pandemic gave me a convenient excuse not to see people and to limit my performing. And when I did perform virtually, I just had the words on my computer screen as a kind of crutch and no one would know. And then the beginning of last year, 2022, which was the year I turned 50, I decided I was going to muster up my courage, take back my power and get back out there with my poetry. But then my dad suddenly got sick and it seems so innocuous at first. It started off as a cold, but then he just got worse and worse and he developed pneumonia. And two months later he was gone and I felt like this huge fist had come out of the sky and pounded me into the earth. I had been in a deep depression for years after my mom passed away and at the beginning of last year, I was determined to fight my way out of it. But after my dad passed away, I slipped right back in and I was done with poetry. So done. In my mind, in my heart, I was telling the universe, telling poetry, don't even think about getting in my head, getting in my heart. I don't want to write. I don't want to read or perform. I don't even want to talk to people. Just leave me alone. Every part of my being was screaming this out to the universe. And you know what the universe did? It sent people to ask me to perform poetry. It wouldn't even let me say no. I mean, I was actively trying to say, no, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And the universe was responding. Yes, you must. It's what you're here for. Before I go any further sharing my story, I want to take a little bit of time here to share something Alice Walker wrote, which is relevant to what I'm talking about. 
I find that most people mainly know Alice Walker as the author of The Color Purple, but she's also an amazing poet. One of my favorite books of all time is her collection of poetry titled Her Blue Body, Everything We Know, published in 1991. And this book is a present that Cal gave to me. And right now, I would like to read you a short passage out of this book because Alice Walker always reminds me why I can't quit poetry. Even when I try so hard to push it away, her words in this preface always remind me and inspire me. And as I just mentioned, this this passage I'm about to read is from the preface of the book. And it's where I took the title of this episode from, Wounds and Wonders. But you'll hear Alice Walker's words on that in a passage that I'll read later in the episode. This passage I'm going to read now is from the first part of that preface. And in it she writes, It surprises me to see I have been writing and publishing poetry for 25 years, for which I have poetry itself to thank. Because I was so often filled with despair over my own and the world's shortcomings, especially during childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood, I assumed I would be a suicide by the age of 30. Not so, I am happy to report. Out of the gloom that covered me rose poetry again and again on its charger of sunlight. My life has been saved more times than I can count by this bright, unbeckoned stranger, from my own deepest ocean and farthest shore. Pay attention, it has said. There is in you the green tree you see from your rope. There is in you the strong river in which you would drown. There is in you the heart you are missing in your sister and fellow beings. I have climbed back into life over and over on a ladder made of words, but knitted truly by the unknowable. Through poetry, I have lived to find within myself my own invincible son. Reading the depth of pain, but also the depth of faith and love that Alice Walker expresses about poetry, it just touches me at my core. I resonate so strongly with it. Because on one level, she's saying that when she was looking for life, for meaning in life, for something meaningful to live for, for her life purpose. Poetry showed her that she didn't need to look anywhere else except inside herself. Proof of life and proof of love is always inside ourselves. Just let it shine. Each and every one of us is an invincible sun. We generate our own light and we can be a beacon to others. We just can't be afraid to let ourselves shine. And I am always so grateful for this reminder. And here I just want to take a moment to clarify that even though I'm talking about poetry as my passion, as my purpose, I hope that you'll replace that in your mind with whatever is your passion, your purpose. I'm talking about poetry for me, but for you, It could be painting or photography or music or cooking or knitting or filmmaking or singing. What is it that you feel in your heart that you were meant to do? That it's your birthright. And you might feel so passionate about it that you have this symbiotic relationship with it. This give and take that can become so intense to the point of love-hate. 
Which brings me back to Alice Walker. I admire when she writes poems directly to poetry about how it harms her, about how the process of writing poetry takes so much from her just so that she can bear her heart and soul in the written form of the poem itself. Because unless you've had this kind of deep passion for something, I don't know if people can really understand this, how the very thing that we're most passionate about can replenish us, but it can also drain us dry. And I admire this so much about Alice Walker and how she expresses in such an honest and raw and powerful way how I feel about poetry as my passion, how sometimes it can drain away so much of my life force and my energy at the same time that it fortifies my heart and uplifts my soul. So this takes me back to last summer and fall 2022. I was so deeply exhausted, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and of course, this also took a toll on me physically. And I didn't want to give anything of myself because I felt like I didn't have anything left to give. I just, I just wanted to be like a hermit, quiet in my house with my plants, with my cat, conserving energy for my kids, and honestly, saving energy just to get through the day. Then I don't know, around... Last September, I received an invite from Larry Robin of Moonstone Arts to read at two poetry events. One was going to be in person, the other one virtual. And I tried to decline saying something to Larry like, oh, I'm getting old and I don't really have the energy anymore to perform at evening events. I don't know, something like that. I said something like that. And Larry responded with... I'm 80 years old, so you can't use that excuse with me. If I can be out there, you can do it too. And what could I really say to that? I didn't want to be ungrateful to Larry. Moonstone Arts and Philly Loves Poetry and its affiliated TV show on Philly Cam have supported me and my poetry family at Community College of Philadelphia so many times over the past decade. So, so I said, okay, I would go perform, but I decided I wasn't going to go all in. So for the in-person poetry reading at the end of November, I brought printed copies of all my work and I planned to read my poems through the entire set. I mean, like I said earlier, I had stage fright. I was still terrified I was going to freeze on stage and forget the words of my poems. So that's what I did. I read my poems. But even when I'm reading, I still put some amount of my heart into it. I can't completely shut it down. So I was trying to conserve as much energy as I could so that I would have the emotional strength just to make it to the end of the set. And afterwards, I went back to my table and there was this young woman sitting at my table. She reached her hand across the table to get my attention and she told me she loved my poetry and that my set was very powerful. And she told me that she was a biracial Asian American woman and she could identify with so much of what I talked about in my poetry. And you know what I said to her? I said, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I have nothing left to give to poetry. I'm empty inside. That's what I said. And she took a, and she took off away from the table like I was nuts. And in a way I was. Look, I always say no matter what, I'm going to be honest with what I think and feel. I'm just not programmed to be fake. I believe in telling the truth or at least my truth. So all I can do is wear my heart on my sleeve and find people who get me. But I don't blame that young woman at all. I don't want anyone to think that's what I'm saying. She was trying to connect. And at that time, the place that I was in mentally and emotionally, I didn't want connection of any kind. 
Then a couple of weeks later, at the next Moonstone reading, which was virtual, something bizarre happened, but also something that gave me pause. It made me feel like I needed to reflect on it because it felt like a message or a sign to snap out of it. Like, it felt like poetry was holding me accountable. So there were about three or four other poets who were reading at this virtual poetry event, and we were reading round robin style, where one of us would introduce ourselves, read a poem, then the next person would introduce themselves, read a poem, and we would keep going around reading a poem until we needed to stop for the Q&A portion. So in the first go round, I went last, introducing myself and reading a poem. And I don't even remember all that I said when I introduced myself. I just know that I ended by saying, I believe in the transformative power of spoken word poetry. And that wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It's in my written bio. So I read my poem. And before we had a chance to go round robin again, for some reason, the host for the event asked the people in the Zoom if they had any questions. Then this guy called me out saying I was arrogant for saying that I believed in the transformative power of poetry. He was saying that it was arrogant to assert that poetry could change people's lives. And he had this incredulous tone, like saying to me, how dare you suggest such a thing? Oh my God, I could feel my face turning red as I was realizing that he was talking about me. I mean, I had gone into that reading thinking I was just going to phone it in. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want to overexert myself. I didn't want to stand out in any way in that reading. I, I wanted to be the poet everybody forgot. I just wanted to do my poems and disappear. And then this person specifically called me out. He didn't have any issue with my poem per se. He had an issue with me saying that poetry could transform people's lives. In other words, that poetry had power. That poetry could enact change. And as he was talking all this shit about me, I could feel this anger just rising inside me. So in the Zoom, I said something like, I think your comment is directed to me, so I'm going to address what you just said. And honestly, I don't remember exactly what I said. I just remember I went to a zone and that I actively had to defend poets and poetry. I know I said something about how I've witnessed firsthand how poetry has impacted people's lives and made them feel empowered, how it has the power to connect people, to touch people's hearts. How because of that, poets and artists in general have been targeted throughout history during despotic regimes. The poets and artists were some of the first people rounded up to be imprisoned and killed. I don't know. I just blanked out and went off. And when I finally came to, you know, became aware again that, oh, I'm in a zoo doing a virtual poetry reading. I better stop ranting. I remember thinking how ironic it was that I didn't want to be called out into that space as a poet to begin with, yet when I had the chance to denounce poetry, I became its most passionate advocate. And when the other poets and people who were in the audience also spoke up, affirming in their own words things that I had said, it somehow felt purposeful. You know what I mean? It felt like it was meant to happen that way. Someone in the audience brought up Salman Rushdie being stabbed on stage 10 times last August. This is a real world present time example of a writer, an artist, almost being killed over their work. If writing, if poetry, if art didn't have the power to transform people's lives, why fear it to the point of attempting to murder the writer, in this case, Salman Rushdie? 
it gave me goosebumps. It just felt like, even though at first I didn't want to be there, I was meant to be there and to have this experience. It was like a wake-up call. Something else that happened which made me feel like I was meant to be at that virtual reading was one of the other poets shared an experience about meeting Gwendolyn Brooks, which was so much like the time I also met Gwendolyn Brooks that it was just uncanny. And if you don't know who Gwendolyn Brooks is, she was the first African-American poet to win a Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. And probably one of her most well-known poems is We So Cool. Anyway, I greatly admired Gwendolyn Brooks when I was in college. And an essay that I wrote analyzing her poems about Emmett Till was published while I was still a college student. So when I met Gwendolyn Brooks, she was doing a poetry reading at the Painted Bride in Philadelphia. This had to be sometime in the mid-1990s. And I feel like I should also add here that she's with the ancestors now. She passed in 2000. So I went to her poetry reading by myself and I brought my book of her collected poems, which is titled Blacks. And I also brought an extra copy of the journal that my essay about her poems was published in. And I was hoping beyond hope that I would be able to meet her and ask her to sign my book and give her a copy of the journal with my essay. So after her poetry reading, she did do a book signing and I remember waiting in line and I was holding my books, all nervous to meet her. And when it was finally my turn, I told her that it was an honor to meet her. And she said to me, are you a poet? Just like that, very direct. And I hadn't written poetry in a while. This was many years before Yellow Rage. And before then, I had written poetry mainly just for myself, but nothing really serious. I was actually writing short stories at that time. So I told her I used to write poetry, but I was mostly writing short stories now, but that I was an English major and I had written an analysis essay that was published about her two poems about Emmett Till titled A Bronzeville Mother Loiters in Mississippi. Meanwhile, a Mississippi mother burns bacon and the last quatrain of the ballad of Emmett Till. And she responded by saying, oh, you're a critic. Oh my goodness. When Gwendolyn Brooks said to me, Oh, you're a critic. My heart sank because she said it with such disappointment. And I know she didn't know me. I was just some girl coming up to her after her poetry reading. But I felt like I had been knocked down a few notches in her eyes. But she was very gracious. She signed my book and she took a copy of my essay and said she would read it. But then right before I walked away, she said to me, get back to writing poetry. And I think meeting Gwendolyn Brooks at that time is one of the reasons why I did get back into writing poetry, that it partly led to me discovering spoken word and eventually going to the Asian Arts Initiative where I met Katsy. And now now that I'm remembering this experience, I'm realizing that going to the Painted Bride is how I found out about the Asian Arts Initiative. The Asian Arts Initiative started at the Painted Bride. So even in this moment, I'm seeing new synchronicities. And it's just so crazy to me that... One of the other poets at this virtual Moonstone poetry reading had almost the same experience meeting Gwendolyn Brooks. They spontaneously shared their story during the session as an example of how poetry had personally transformed their life. And the only real difference in their experience to mine was they had brought copies of their poems for Gwendolyn Brooks, not an essay like I did. But Gwendolyn Brooks said similar things like, are you a poet? And I think she said to them as they were about to walk away, keep writing poetry. When I heard their story, I felt goosebumps. Like 
I was meant to hear that. I was meant to hear the story that was so similar to mine. It was almost like looking in a mirror, pulling up that memory from so long ago that I had almost forgotten it. Reminding me that every step on my path of poetry from the struggles to the synchronicities was a journey that I was meant to be on. And I think it was in this moment that I realized that for all of the ways that I believed poetry took energy away from me, poetry also gave energy back to me. That being invited to perform poetry, that was a gift. Having a young biracial Asian American woman tell me she enjoyed my poetry set, that was a gift. Even having an audience member tell me I was arrogant and put me in a position where I had to actively defend poetry, that was a gift too. It was poetry sending me a message to remind me about why I write and perform poetry in the first place. I do it to connect people, to build community, to serve, to show love, to learn about myself, to try to make the world a better place. And through it all, through all of these experiences and situations and processes, poetry has helped me heal. And I have used poetry as a tool to help others heal. What these synchronicities reminded me was that I could choose a different kind of loop. Instead of a toxic loop of negative self-talk, I could engage in a positive and restorative loop of expressing gratitude for the blessings that poetry has brought and continues to bring into my life. But just because these Moonstone poetry readings opened me up to these messages, that doesn't mean I was quote-unquote cured overnight. I still had overwhelming stage fright. I still had this deep fear that when I got up on stage and got behind the mic, that I would open my mouth, but nothing would come out. But now with these Moonstone poetry experiences, I adopted a new perspective that the obstacle was the way, that the problem was actually the solution. Instead of retreating into my house and staying there, I had to have faith that poetry would protect me even as I made myself completely vulnerable. The most important thing was to get up, get out there, and keep performing, healing bit by bit, step by step. And I never looked for opportunities to perform. The universe sent me invitations to perform. And all I had to do was say, okay. So at the beginning of 2023, Katsy and I were invited to perform at 12 Gates Arts in Philadelphia. And Katsy and I hadn't performed together like that in a while. You know, we haven't officially retired as Yellow Rage, but we really don't do much performing nowadays. So when Aisha Khan, the executive director of 12 Gates Arts, asked us to perform, I was terrified, but I said, okay. And I also thought it would be easier because I would be doing it with Katsy, but I still read some of my solo poems. I didn't perform them all from memory. It was a small crowd, which was a blessing to me, but Katsy and I did our thing. And afterwards, Katsy said something like, I forgot how great we were, which made me laugh and I was having fun with it. And Aisha was so gracious and so supportive. I'm deeply grateful for that opportunity to remember how great we were, as Katsy said. And my fear lessened just a bit. Then more performance opportunities were offered to me, interestingly, by and for young people. 
you know, sometimes I get concerned that I'm getting out of touch with the younger generation or they're not really feeling what I'm saying. But my students at Jefferson University have believed in me so much. It really warms my heart because like I said earlier, after my dad passed away last year, I really just wanted to go through the motions. I didn't even want to go back to teaching last September. And when it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to take a leave of absence, I told myself I was just going to do the bare minimum because I have a tendency to go all out when I teach, like always being available and present for my students, answering emails in the evening and on weekends. I have this habit of making my classes the center of my life. But my fall 2022 students were amazing. They didn't know I was having panic attacks and vertigo episodes in class. I hid that pretty well, but they were present and so eager to learn. In my Asian American Studies class, many of my students were members of ASA, the Asian Student Association on campus, and they inspired me so much with their views on social justice issues and identity and community building. And it was these students and some of my students from my Immigrant America class last fall who really uplifted my spirits. And I was invited to perform at two events coordinated by my students. And this time, I performed even more poems from memory. And the fear lessened a little bit more. Baby steps, right? Then then one of the biggest challenges I had to face performing poetry happened this past spring for National Poetry Month in April. So I'm an official poet in the Dodge Poetry Program, which is an affiliate of the Dodge Foundation in New Jersey. And last April, I was invited to perform and facilitate writing workshops for students in four schools in Central and North Jersey. Now, my entire poetry career, I've said how performing poetry for young people is both the most nerve-wracking and most rewarding experience ever. Because young people are brutally honest. If they don't like you, they will not hide it. And if they love you, they will proclaim it. And when this invitation came to me, I knew this was it. If I could get through the performances and workshops at these four schools, if I could face my fears and push through the stage fright and connect in a meaningful way with these young people, I felt like I could truly feel like I was climbing back into life on the ladder of words given to me by poetry, referring back to the passage I shared earlier by Alice Walker. This would be the gift that poetry was giving back to me. And what a profoundly inspiring experience I had at all four schools. I know this episode is running long right now. I want to tell you so much. I wish I could tell you about the presence and attention the students gave to me when I performed my poems, most of them from memory, and the amazing poems the students wrote and the thoughtful questions they asked. I wish I could share with you what students confided to me in conversations that happened after class was over. Them taking the time to talk with me, knowing they might be late to their next class, but wanting to connect. I wish I could describe all of these so you can understand how incredible it was, these blessings that were being exchanged through poetry. But I know we don't have time for that. So instead, I'll focus on one experience in particular which happened on the last day of my school visits. Again, I still had stage fright. I still had to fight down panic attacks that I would open my mouth and nothing would come out. But I performed three 45-minute sets that day. And each time I put my all into it, every emotion that each poem called for, I just poured it all in. And after the performances, 
there were Q&A sessions. And during one of them, a young woman told me that she thought my poetry was powerful, but she wondered if I ever wanted to quit poetry. Point blank, just like that. She asked the question that I had been wrestling with for the past several years. Did I ever want to quit poetry? And I could have given her a bullshit answer. But when I heard her voice in it, I heard the universe daring me to denounce poetry. Was I going to be honest? Was I going to fight for the right to be a poet? Was I going to claim it as my purpose? And I knew my responsibility in that moment was to be honest, to share my wounds, which were really my gifts. So I told this young woman that it was very interesting that she asked that question because I wanted to quit poetry all the time. That ever since my mom passed away, I've had terrible stage fright. That even that very afternoon, getting up on stage and standing behind that mic in their auditorium at their school, I didn't know if I would have the strength to open my mouth and speak the words. But I came to their school because I felt strongly that being there was bigger than me. I received the invitation to perform at their poetry festival, and I knew I had to try, because there is nothing more rewarding than connecting to an audience of young people. This is what I told her. And the entire time I was speaking into reality this answer to this young woman, I felt this resonance within me. This energy flowing as if my energy and the energy of everyone in that auditorium and the energy and the atmosphere around us were all swirling together. And when I was leaving the auditorium after that last performance and Q&A, one of the teachers came up to me and told me that my poetry was powerful and that I said important things that people needed to hear. But she also said to me, I just hope that you can find the joy in it. So now this was a new message that I was receiving. Find the joy in poetry. That was my challenge. I had to really ask myself what joy did I get from performing poetry. My poetry can be super heavy at times with various levels of anger and sadness and infusing those emotions into my performances can be so exhausting. I try to find the balance in it, but sometimes I veer too much toward anger and other times I veer too much to sadness or to sorrow. And I had to ask myself, is it possible for me to recalibrate, to discover the joy in sharing my poems with others? So that's a part of the journey that I'm on now, finding the joy. And I feel as though performing in our town Reno this past July really illuminated for me what that joy is. But of course, deep inside, I already knew what it was. It's connecting to others and building community. There's nothing more profoundly sacred than doing something out of pure love, sharing poetry just for the love of it and for the love of whoever or whatever it is I'm talking about. Sharing poetry to show love to the audience for giving their time and attention, and energy, and support, and stories, and experiences, and witnessing how, through poetry, 
We can build community in a way where spreading that love has a ripple effect beyond that particular time and space, spilling over into the next day, into another community, reaching far and wide, crossing boundaries and borders and thresholds to touch person after person, move heart after heart. That is the joy, the meaning, and the purpose. I'm so grateful to Ian Watson, founder and director of Spoken Views Collective, for inviting me to perform in Reno many times over the past 10 years and for creating these uplifting and restorative spaces where spoken word poetry thrives. I always leave Reno feeling inspired and transformed. Many thanks to the venues for providing the space for these events, Black Rabbit Meadery and Shim's Surplus Supplies. I'm also so thankful for the opportunity to build community whenever I'm in Reno. I love reconnecting to old friends and amazing poets, Jesse James Ziegler, Elisa Garcia, Griffin Peralta, and JD. And I'm happy to have met so many wonderful people this past July who shared their powerful and moving poetry. Sam, Cheyenne, Caleb, Laura, Philip, Bennett, Kamala, M. Colton, and Sam, as well as Touche and Caleb W. for bringing the fire during their sets at Shims. I want to give a special thanks to Laura and Kamala for connecting with me personally and for their beautiful messages. Shout out to the guys in the band, Ethan, Max, and Ben, for the amazing job they did with their jazz accompaniment with all the poets at Black Rabbit Meadery. And big hugs to all the people who participated in my writing workshop, Kanye, Gail, Kamala, and Isis. And I'm so grateful that I was able to share these uplifting and joyful experiences with my beautiful daughters, Myung and Vanessa, and my dear friend and sister, Cal. I've run out of time in this episode, and I didn't get to talk about the sacredness of Pyramid Lake, but I hope to come back to it. To bring this episode to a close and pull it together into a message for all of you who are still listening, and if you are still listening, thank you so much for being here in this moment with me. At this place in my journey, I'm still fearful at times, but I'm committed to reattuning myself to what I love and finding the strength to move into a positive emotional energy. And I'm sharing my story with you because I feel like I'm not alone in the struggle. I feel that many people are grappling with their fears and their self-doubt, maybe with panic attacks, and many of us do it alone. And because they, we, I have been holding it in, it's created this inner toxicity, this unrelenting loop of toxic thoughts, behaviors, and actions. And I've shared my experiences with you so that you could see my struggles, my imperfections, all my warts. And also see the process that I'm going through to break free of this inner toxicity. And I truly want to help people discover ways that they can mindfully and intentionally foster their own healing process and be committed to thoughts, behaviors, and actions that prioritize self-care and self-worth. And I hope to share more about how I might try to do this soon. But right now, I'd like to close with the ending passage from Alice Walker's preface to her book of collective poetry, Her Blue Body, Everything We Know. She writes, In keeping faith with poetry's honest help to me, I have not deleted or changed beyond a word or two anything I have written 
though greatly tempted at times to do so. The young self, the naive promiscuous self, the ill or self-destructive self, the angry and hurt self appear doubly vulnerable now in light of my unexpected bonus of years and the experience they have brought me. I embrace them all as poetry has embraced me. The poem, the world, and I and you are one. It is at the point that we meet that you hold this book. Out of unknowing and sacrifice, we come bearing our wonders, our wounds, and our gifts. My dear, beautiful friends, let us go out into the world unafraid of bearing our entire self, all of our wonders, our wounds, and our gifts. Thank you very much again for listening. I'm grateful to you for spending this time with me and for sharing space with me. I just want to reiterate again that there is a link in the podcast episode description where you can donate to help recovery efforts in Maui. There is also a link to a YouTube video created by the Paiute Nation at Pyramid Lake to raise awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women. If you'd like to contact Myung and me, you can reach out to us via email at mindyourmargins at gmail.com and, and on X, formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Myung and I also hope you will like and follow us on these social media platforms as well as subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Until we share space again, please be mindful of yourselves and mindful of others. Take good care. I am boy, I'm gonna spend my grandfather, one of the ancestors. I need to find my space, to find my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin tight, but my skin fits me just They're all there, my ancestral throne, for I am, we are lifetimes infinite, billion strong.